0: Uh, many of you know that I served in the National Guard for several years as a chaplain assistant, uh, meaning I helped the chaplain uh, provide religious support to soldiers. And one year at our annual training, something happened that has stuck with me for probably five, five or six years now. And I, I still think about it, um, and I have regrets. Um, it was, uh, we were doing a field training exercise, and it was our last night in the field, and one of the female soldiers that I was kind of, kind of friends with her, it's not like we were best friends or anything, but uh, she found out through a pretty horrible way that her fiancé was cheating on her, meaning he texted her something that he intended to text the other woman, and it was, it was a mess, it was drama. And uh, I walked into the office that her section was occupying the next morning, um, and she looks at me and she said, like she was putting on a pretty brave face. She said, Rondy, do you have anything for me? And I was like, I did not expect that. Um, I was, like I said, I wasn't super close with her. She was not a Christian, though, and I knew that. Uh, she had offered that information to me in the past and never seemed interested in it. So when she asked me that question, I, I kind of stumbled as it were. um, I was like, uh, not really. And uh, there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, I was taken by surprise, uh, not expecting somebody who had shown no interest in God for the years that I had known her to all of a sudden be like, oh, now I want uh, want something, right? And maybe you're the person who can give it to me. Um, Another reason is, frankly, I was kind of nervous. I was surrounded by a bunch of soldiers who you know, they, were, they liked me and they respected me, but I knew they were not believers. So I kind of felt, you know, in Babylon to an extent, as it were. And I also thought, this is, this is after a lot of reflection and trying to process it, but I was like, she's not, she's, she's, she wants a, like a pithy statement, like some wisdom, some advice, something to make her feel better for a moment. And so because of, for all those reasons, I kind of dropped the ball. I'm just like, yeah, I don't really have anything. And I remember thinking later, and I've thought, been, I've thought this many times over the years. Like, I didn't, I had something for her. I, I did. But it wasn't a thing that she wanted. And that's a lot, that's mostly why I didn't give it to her. I was like, I don't have anything in here for you that is removed from God himself. Like, it's not helpful for you it might even it make you feel better for 5 minutes but if but like we remove god we remove jesus from it it's meaningless so a couple questions that we're going to discuss this morning the first one is what do we have the second one is why don't we share it with others why don't we give what we have to those who need it the most and uh we're going to read now about a couple of men who knew what they had and gave it freely even to somebody who didn't ne- wasn't necessarily asking for it. Maybe didn't even want it or didn't know how badly he knitted it. So turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Also, um, a very wise man, wise pastor once told me, don't misplace your preaching Bible or you'll be forced to use a Bible with the tiniest font. No demand. This is probably eight point font. So, let's read verses 1 through 10. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. walking and leaping and praising God. And all of the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, let's start with a clicker that works this time. Because it's on, thank you, sound booth, Um, with Peter and John, who are Peter and John, or who, who, what are these characters like in this story? Well, first of all, they're not necessarily rock stars, or at least they haven't been the entire time that they've been disciples or apostles. John, one of the Sons of Thunder, which is the coolest nickname, right? Like, if you want to call me a Son of Thunder, I'll take it. Hopefully not for the reasons that John was called the Son of Thunder, He was called the Son of Thunder because he and his brother uh, got mad at a Samaritan town and asked Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven upon the town? And Jesus was like, Father, help me. (laughs) He's like, no, that's not what I'm here for. But they also, John asked or had his mommy ask Jesus if he and his brother, I almost got drugged with that one, if he and his brother could sit at Jesus' right and left when he sat upon his throne. And Jesus was like, you have no idea what you're actually asking. Like, I'm going to have people on my right and left pretty soon, but I'm not going to be on a throne, and they're not going to be enjoying it. And frankly, there's a lot of elements of it that you won't enjoy either. John also betrayed Jesus, abandoned him in his hour of greatest need in the garden, so John's not too great. Well, what about Peter? Peter's like the guy, right? He's like the disciple. He's always the first one to talk because he's so smart, right? Or no, not, it's actually the opposite. It's like he talks because he's not smart. Sometimes he doesn't even know what he's saying. So Peter, not the, not the brightest of the disciples, also abandoned Jesus when he needed him the most. Also denied even knowing who he was, Three times. Didn't deny, like, being his friend. Didn't deny that Jesus was the Christ when asked. He's like, I don't even know who that is, dude. So, what are these two men doing in this scene then? We just read they're about to perform a healing. How did we get there? Well, something happened to them. There was a transformation that took place. And it's called the Holy Spirit, Right? that's the difference between the knuckleheads in the gospels and the apostles in the book of acts is now they are empowered by the holy spirit not for their own glory not just for their own kicks and giggles but to do the work of god and unfortunately for me i don't have the excuse of not being empowered by the holy spirit you know i had something to offer my friend and I didn't give it to her, and I can't say, well, was, look, how, how are you going to compare me to Peter and John when they're, they're up here and I'm down here? And it's like, no, we're all on the same level in terms of being empowered by the Holy Spirit. So I didn't get to use that as an excuse, unfortunately. Next, a beggar is brought into the temple, and this man was lame probably from birth. We find out in the next chapter that he had been lame for 40 years. He's lucky, though, because he actually had friends to take him places. Most crippled people in the ancient world would have had nobody, would have had no expectations or thoughts of being able to maintain much of a life. There were no jobs for people with disabilities. And even though there were provisions in the law of Moses to take care of the poor among them, the Israelites often failed to do so. His very presence, his existence was a an example of Israel's failure to take care of the poor and needy among them. And that's probably why he had his friends bring him in to the temple at 3 3 p.m. Because that was a time of prayer. Hopefully, he thought, people would be more apt to give me alms, to give me money or food when they're in a mood of prayer and worship, right? They'll be reminded of the laws to take care of the poor and the oppressed among you as they're going to be with God in the temple. Now, I do want to point out, though, uh, this is this this story doesn't uh, say, "Oh, only take care of the, the lame beggars among you. We don't have to take care of anybody else. We don't have to help anybody else." This was a very needy person, but anybody who doesn't have a relationship with Christ, anybody who's not Received and believed the gospel is far more needy than this beggar ever was. So, when we think about those in need, though the lame beggars, we're not just talking about physically lame, although I will say we got to take care of those people too, right? We can't just leave them behind, but we need to think in terms of need about people who need the gospel, people who need to have the thing or who need the thing that we have. So, Peter and John walk in, the beggar's sitting there. And I love this aspect of this story. Peter and John fix their gaze upon him. They look him in the eyes. And I know I'm not the only one who's driven up to an intersection and seen a poor person with a cardboard sign on the corner asking for money and like tried very very cleverly to, like, get them in my blind spot so I can't make eye contact. Like, imagine how much more awkward and shameful that would be, not only to the, the the people who were walking by him, but to him to be sitting there for years, day after day, and people won't even look at you. Like, conveniently, he's sitting right there, and, oh, all of a sudden, there's something interesting over there, right? It's dehumanizing and dehumanizing moralizing. And the first thing that Peter and John do is look at, look at him, and then tell him to look at us. Like, we want to make eye contact. Like, you are a human. Look at us. You're not lesser than us. You're not unworthy of our attention. And the man looks at them because he's thinking, he's, they're going to give me something. Like, they're going to give me some money. Maybe I can buy some bread, maybe a little wine. Like, I can eat and drink today. Well, they weren't just going to give him a little bit of money or, or bread or clothing. They were going to give him what he actually needed. You know, there's a, there's a popular book called When Helping Hurts, and it's about essentially how just giving a, a homeless person a $20 bill in some ways just continues to perpetuate this cycle of poverty in their lives. Like, you're not really helping them. It makes us feel better, and frankly, I'm sure that they appreciate the $20 bill, but it doesn't lift them out from where they are, right? And frankly, I think often we just do it so that we feel a little, so that we're, we're not, we don't feel guilty, right? So that we can move on with our day, maybe even brag a little bit about it, right? In order to to help somebody, to give somebody what they truly need, you actually have to step into their lives. You have to stop what you're doing and enter into their life so peter says knowing what the man expected in verse six i have no silver and gold but what i do have i give you in the name of jesus christ of nazareth rise up and walk Peter's like, I, I, don't, I don't have what you want. Like, my, my wallet's empty, as a matter of fact. Pr- Peter and the rest of the disciples were, you know, they probably weren't wealthy the rest of their lives. So Peter's like, I don't, I don't have that. I don't have that stuff. But I, I do have something for you. And the amazing thing is Peter knew, uh, Craig will talk about this eloquently next week, but Peter knew that this man had at least some potential for faith to be healed. He says, like, I could see it in his eyes he had faith. So he gave him what he needed. He gave him what he did have, which was not just a healing, right? Like, a, for, for Peter to do, like, a drive-by healing would have been as helpful as Peter giving him a $20 bill. He didn't just give him healing. He gave him freedom. He gave him the gospel. He gave him the name of Jesus Christ. And we have to be careful here when we talk about giving people what they need and not what they want because we do have to help people like with physical needs, right? Like if, you know, Craig and I are are lifting in the gym and and Craig is trying to bench press and he hurts your shoulder for the 17th time and he can't get the bar off his chest and he's like, "Randy, help? I can't just be like, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, heal or like lift the bar up. Like, no, I I have to actually get the bar off his chest, right? James tells us this in James chapter 2. He's like, you can't have people coming to you saying like, I literally don't have clothes and I'm freezing, or I don't have any food and I'm starving. You can't just say, I will pray for you. Like, he's like, you have to help people. Like, that's what we're here for. But don't stop there, right? I love what Peter does here. He lifts him up, right, so he stops, he steps into the man's world, he gives him the thing that he needs, Jesus Christ, then he lifts him up, and then they go into the temple together to pray and worship. Peter didn't just do a drive-by healing, like I said, this man is now part of his life. One of my professors, uh, when I was at Cornerstone, would frequently talk about a homeless man that he was friends with um, named Lou. And he learned so much about actually actually helping people through his friendship with Lou. At at one point, uh, he had had Lou over to his house, and um, Lou lived in a, a tent down by the river. And uh, my friend or my professor was taking him home, and Lou gave him twenty bucks for gas. And he's like, "No, dude, like that's all the money he had." He's like, "No, no, 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 Lou, like I can't take that. It's fine, I got it." And Lou's like, "This is this is what friends do, though. Like, I'm not a charity, right? I'm not just like a pity case. Like, I am your friend. We're in each other's lives, and this is one of the things that friends do. But at the end of the day, we we do have the thing." that people really, truly do need. Again, we can't just pretend that the other needs don't exist, but we also can't just give people a $20 bill or even be friends with them and just somehow never tell them about Jesus, right? Never share the gospel with them. So, next question, what do we have, right? We're gonna take some time considering the the thing, like what is the thing that I'm talking about, or more specifically, we're going to talk about what we don't have. We don't just have a story. Many of you know uh, my faith, well, actually, maybe some of you don't know. My favorite book of the Bible is, is Ruth. And I talk about it so much with my students that they make fun of me. And they're like, oh, what are we going to study next? The book of Ruth. And I'm like, it's a really good story, though. Like, you get this awesome woman, and she's a foreign widow in Israel walking into a dangerous situation and she's doing it out of her loving kindness for her mother-in-law and she meets this dude named Boaz who has every chance and to an extent legal right to be a dirtbag, and he just doesn't let you down and potentially throws a shoe at the the other guy who was supposed to redeem her then it was just a great story like two of the greatest characters in the bible and they're like two of the only ones who don't let you down at some point, right? It's an awesome story, but if that's, if you remove God from it, right, if you remove the truth from it, it's meaningless. Like, it doesn't help anybody. It's kind of entertaining, I guess. Kind of weird, too, but it's not just a story, and it's not just a collection of wise sayings. Think of that proverb that's like, better to better to have a spot on the roof than live with an angry woman or something? Like, somebody help me? <laughs> like, <okay. laughs> um, I'm just saying, though. But like, I, I'm not married. Maybe that's why. But that makes sense to me, right? Like, I maybe would rather sleep on the roof than be with a really angry woman. Choices. <laughs> But no, if that's all it is, right? Like, think about my friend asking me for, um, you know, some, some wise statement or something to make her feel better. Like, I can't just give you that, because that by itself is meaningless. It's nothing. It might make you feel better for a day or two, but that's it. And it's definitely not going to solve your long-term problem of, I'm going to hell because I'm an unbeliever, right? It's not just wise sayings, and it is definitely not just a good example and a good moral teacher, which is Jesus. And in this age of deconstruction, a lot of people want to try to remove aspects of the gospel to make it more palatable, and they'll do some really weird things with it. I know a person who, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, like fully God, right, Uppercase G, not, or, yeah, not an Aryan. Um, fully God, that he came to earth, became fully man, remaining what he was, became what he was not, that he lived on the earth for 30 years, that he taught and that he taught the things that are recorded in the Bible. They believe that he was crucified by the Romans, that in three days he rose again, and then that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. They do not believe that they need to believe in him to be saved. I don't know how one gets there, but my point is we can't take aspects away from what is written about Jesus in here to make it more palatable, more digestible for us. I think often we we want to shy away from the like the hell conversation. Jesus talked about hell all the time. He's like this is coming and I want you guys to be saved. Like, you need to believe in me, and if he said the things that he said, but he's not who he said he was, he's not a good moral teacher. He can't be. He's either a liar, like a sociopathic liar, or a lunatic, or he is what he said he is, right? We can't take aspects of who Jesus is away from him, we can't take aspects of the gospel out of it just to make it easier to digest should make us feel uncomfortable sometimes. So that's what we have, not a sto- not just a story. Great story, not just a story. Not a bunch of good advice, right? Definitely not just a good moral teacher. We have the truth, we have the one thing that can truly give us meaning and fulfillment, the gospel, because it gives us a relationship with god you can't take him away from it because then the rest of it just shatters so that's what we have we have the the best thing right think of the story of or i think of the book of ecclesiastes right and the author uses that term meaningless meaningless over and over and over again and it's the hebrew is it's related to a a word that means uh, like mist or vapor, and the point is it's something like it's there and then it disappears, it dissipates, it evaporates quickly. And I contrast that, which is everything that we can give to somebody that is not the gospel, right? It's, it's the $20 bill. It's even love and friendship. But if we don't give them the gospel, it's mist, it's vapor, it's going to evaporate, go away. Contrasted that with the living water, that Jesus offers us in John chapter 4, right? That will sustain, that will never go away, and it will never dry up. So that's what we have. Why don't we share it? Anybody know? Just hoping Marco would jump in there. I think one of the main reasons is because we're afraid. And... I think it's okay to admit that. Like, we kind of have to face that, right? It can be intimidating. I get it. Um, we, we worry that we will get rejected. I was worried with my friend that she would say, like, dude, no, I don't want that. Like, give me, give me the thing that I want. And I'm, like, trying to give you the thing you need, right? It can be intimidating. But I think we, we put too much of ourselves and too much of our ego into that conversation when we let ourselves be kind of driven by that. Because we're not the ones being rejected. Our ego is not the thing that's at stake there. They're not rejecting us, they're rejecting Jesus. So why are we worried about it? I think we also worry that we'll look stupid. But God's word clearly tells us that his wisdom is going to look like foolishness to the world. There's an extent to which maybe if we don't look at least a little odd, we're doing something wrong. After all, look at the king that we worship. He came into this world through a virgin birth, knowing that everybody was going to think it was through an affair, through adultery on his mother's part, which would have been incredibly scandalous. He lived for 30 years as a a carpenter or maybe a stonemason, a very humble, difficult, brutal job before he even began his ministry. He knew the expectations his people had for him as coming as a, a military leader, especially at that time, to overthrow the Romans and, and bring independence back to Israel. And he's like, I, I, I'm coming anyways. I'm coming as the thing that I am, not the thing you want me to be. I'm giving you the thing that I need or you need not the thing you want. He taught them to live the opposite of the way that the world tells us to live. He said, one of my favorite teachings of Jesus, because I get to use this when people refuse to forgive others, is love your enemies and pray for them. Because there's, like, there's no bar for not, like, oh, I don't have to forgive that person because they did this thing. And Jesus was like, you guys killed me on a cross, and I took the wrath of the Father for you, and you're forgiven. It's Like, we can't really choose to not forgive somebody because of a bad thing that they did. He told his followers, his closest followers, who wanted to be in, like, his military royal council, that the way to live, the way to follow him is to pick up your cross, which is this horribly, ugly, humiliating symbol. It was terrible. It was shameful. He's like, pick that thing up and follow me. If this is about looking foolish, we should expect to look foolish to those whose hearts are hardened to the gospel, but it shouldn't make us not share it. Who cares about looking foolish when that's what's at stake? I also wonder if we actually fully believe in the the power of the gospel? Is it possible that we don't share it because maybe we just don't believe in it enough. Like maybe we don't trust its transformative effects in our own lives and we're like, oh, what if I try to give this to you and it's not enough? Or are we not fully satisfied by it? Are we not fully living as kingdom citizens, maybe we got a foot left in the world, right? Is that why we don't give it to the people who desperately need it, even when they're asking us for other things? I want to take a moment, though, to imagine, imagine the hopelessness of this beggar, okay? Going back to the text. He's 40 years old. He's been lame probably his entire life. His future, the rest of his life, the only life that he's known, is going to places to beg for money, for food. He's relying on the um, the charitabil- or charitableness of strangers. Like, that's all he's got to look forward to. He's probably going to die of hunger or, or disease at some point, an early death. And in the meantime, he's going to have a pretty miserable Painful, shameful life. It's got nothing to look forward to, nothing to hope in. Now, imagine the hopelessness of somebody who doesn't know Jesus, somebody who hasn't been given the gospel, who hasn't been given that living water. Some of them probably don't even know it because they're too distracted by sin and by the world if you sit down and think about, like, what is somebody without Jesus, like, what do they have? Like, nothing. No, I mean, not, not just in the life to come, which is, that'd be very consequential, right? We're talking about the difference between eternity with God and eternity in punishment, right? But even in this life, like, there's no hope. Like, what do you turn to if you don't know Jesus, I'm going to close with a story about my grandpa. Uh, my grandpa passed away this summer. And he was not a Christian. And I, I had known this, and we'd even, we would even, hadn't really talked about it, but he had told me point blank, he was like, hey, I know you're into the God thing. I, I don't want anything to do with it, though, right? And so I was kind of like, okay, we, we know where each other stand." And I went to visit him. Um, I was going to meet my, my dad and, and brother uh, at his place at one point this summer. And uh, I got there like 20 minutes before them, and I didn't, you know, we just chit-chatted, right? But I've been thinking about those 20 minutes a lot because he went to the hospital for a, a routine surgery a couple days later, and then like two weeks after that, he was dead. And uh, I was with my some of my family in the hospital when he was taking his last breaths and I didn't know that last breaths were as brutal as last breaths are because it's not like it's like a body struggling for air for 15 minutes and then the heart beats for about 5 minutes or at least his did after his last breath Uh. And I'm standing there with my, my family members on either side of me. I was the only Christian there, and I just kept thinking about those 20 minutes that I had with him. And I was thinking, why didn't I ask him anything? Like, Why didn't I just say, hey, Grandpa, can you just tell me why you don't like God? Like, never talked to him about it. Like, what, what would I have lost? Like, I knew that he was chasing after this mist, this vapor that he was asking for alms like the beggar. I knew that I had the living water, the thing that he truly needed. Why didn't I just offer it to him? What's the worst that could have happened? I can promise you this. I can promise this for myself, at least. I don't think I'll ever regret trying to tell somebody about Jesus, but I know that I've regretted not. And those, I mean, really, those are the only two times I can think of where I had, like, a really good opportunity, and I didn't say anything. And I hope and pray that that will cause me in the future to be willing to take the risk to share the thing. Because I don't have, like, I can't meet everybody's every single need, but I can give them the one thing that they do need, even if they're not asking for it. Let's pray.